Do you ever lament or complain to the Lord? Is it wrong, sin, to lament or complain to the Lord? I want you to seek some answers to those questions as we interact with Psalm 3. Reading together Psalm chapter 3, we'll give some historical context in a few moments. David is the writer of the psalm. It is in the context of when he fled from his son Absalom. But Psalm chapter 3, reading together. Psalm chapter 3. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying to me, God will not deliver him. Selah. But you're a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. Selah. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I would not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be in your people. Selah. David again wrote this psalm. It was possibly, and I'm not being dogmatic on this, but from some that I, scholars that I've read, it's possible that he wrote it on the second morning after his escape from Jerusalem when Absalom was rebelling against him. He is fleeing from Absalom, his own son, who wants to overtake the kingship. There's no flowery language in this psalm. He gets right to the point. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? And you'll notice that the term selah is used three times. It's used only in the psalms, and it's used one time in Habakkuk, and that is in the context of where Habakkuk has a short psalm, In chapter 3, Selah basically means to lift up. So the thought is kind of like a crescendo mark in music. There's been a soft accompaniment, and all of a sudden it, whoa, really jacks the pace up. You know, boom. Pull out all the stops. There's a roar of music to draw attention to what is going to be said. Another explanation of the word selah is that the word means, there, what do you think of that? Or we might say today, put that in italics. Put that in capital letters. So notice at the end of verse 2, many, or in verse 2, many are saying of him, God will not deliver him. Selah. Whoa, bring up the crescendo. Pay attention. What's going on here? And he says, but you're a shield around me, O Lord. Then he says in verse 4, to the Lord I cried aloud, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah, lift up the tempo. I lie down and sleep. In the midst of running from his son, the potential loss of his kingship, I lie down and sleep. And then at the end of the psalm, may your blessing be on your people. And again, the tempo being picked up. 
David writes a psalm, and again, he's so honest, so open as he responds to the Lord. It's a lament, a psalm of what we call lament. It's in book one of the psalms where Jehovah, or Lord, is used 273 times. And remember, the psalms are divided into five books. They would have been used in worshiping Israel. But Lord is used 273 times. Elohim appears only 15 times. Word for God. There's parallelism in the Psalms. And in Psalm 3, the second line enriches the first line. O Lord, how many are my foes? And then he says, how many rise up against me? Verse 2, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Again, amplifies what is being said. As you look at the psalm, we have God address, or I'm sorry, David addressing the Lord. He airs his complaint in verses 1 and 2. He expresses trust in verses 3 and 4. He talks about deliverance in 5 and 6, the assurance in verse 7, and then praise in verse 8. He begins his psalm with, O Lord. Notice it's in caps. We're talking about the Lord, the one who is independent, the one who is self-existing, the one who is continuous. Stop and ponder. Nothing in this world is independent, self-existing, or continuous other than the Lord. You get in your car. It needs a driver now. It might not in the future. But it still needs gasoline. It still needs oxygen. It needs a road to go on. You think about a bird. A bird needs an atmosphere to even fly. Think about an airplane. It needs fuel. Everything in the universe is dependent. The dependent creature David is talking to the independent, self-existing, continuous one. When did God begin? He always was. When does he end? He always was. You say, I can't fathom that. Who can? Because we're the creature. But he says, O Lord, how many are my foes. How many rise up against me? Many are saying to me, God will not deliver him. The historical situation is important when it comes to understanding Psalm chapter 3. We won't be reading the chapters in 2 Samuel, but if you read in 2 Samuel 11 through 18, you get the historical situation. In chapter 11, we know that David stayed home from war. His army is out fighting. He gets up one night and he Roofs were flat that day. And he looks at the neighboring roof and he sees a woman bathing. Bathsheba sees her bathing. He has her brought to his house. We know that there was a sexual relationship involved. And she later sent word to him, David, I'm pregnant. And it's got to be by you because my husband is at war. We know that David does a few things to try to get out of this. David sends for her husband to come home, assuming her husband will come home. 
he will go in to his wife and they will have sexual relationships and he can blame the child on her husband. Her husband comes home. He does not go into his home. He stays on the porch of the palace because the army is out in the field fighting. He cannot go to his wife. David finds out about this. He keeps him a second night. even gives him something to drink, assuming he'll go home. He doesn't go home again. Now David is in deep trouble. So what does he do? He writes a note, gives it to Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, and says, take this to the general. He's taking his own death order to the general because the order was put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle and then withdraw so that he'll be killed. And we know Uriah died. He stole another man's wife. He had him killed. And we know that David, for a year, the child was already born. A year later, or about a year, he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. Nathan told him a little story, and then Nathan said, you're the man. And it's interesting, and it's very important that we understand David, when confronted by Nathan, repented. There was confession, there was repentance. That comes out very strongly in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. That's critical. He sinned in a major way. But yet he repented. There was confession. And part of the consequence, even though he repented and confessed, was that there would be problems in his family. Amnon, his son, raped his daughter Tamar. Amnon and Tamar had different mothers. Keep in mind, David had more than one wife. But Amnon raped Tamar. Two years passed, and during this two-year period, Absalom, another son of David, a sister of Tamar, decided, I'm going to kill Amnon. He didn't do it himself. He had some of his men do it. Because of that... we find that Absalom flees, and for three years he was out of Jerusalem. Someone came to David and said, it's time you bring your son back to Jerusalem. So Absalom was brought back to Jerusalem, but he did not talk to the king. Two years passed from the time Absalom came back until he talked to the king. He then talked to the king, there was some interaction, and between that time and the time that Absalom rebels against David, four years passed. And at the end of the four years, we're talking many years after the sin of David, Absalom rebels. He wants to set himself up as king because he was kind of priming for that. People would come into the city and he would sit at the city gate. And he'd say, oh, you have a problem. I'll take care of that. Didn't have to go to the king. So Israel was following Absalom Absalom is setting up his kingship. And what is David doing? David is fleeing. How many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying to me, God will not deliver him. David is in a very, very difficult situation. 
He's fleeing from his own son. And I want you to keep in mind that this is happening because of David's own sin. It's part of the consequence. The sword would not leave. You know, the difficulty would not leave from David's own house. And when David says, how many are saying to me, God will not deliver him. I'm not sure, but it may be tied in with what is said in 2 Samuel. Just listen as I read from 2 Samuel 16. As King David approached Behilom, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, the son of Grah, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones. All the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. You've come to ruin because you're a man of blood. How many... Or many are saying to me, God will not deliver him. Selah. Take note. Because what does he say in verse 3? But you're a shield around me, O Lord. You are a shield around me. A shield being a metaphor to explain protection. To explain that which was used during war for protection. It is used in Genesis 15.1, Psalm 15.10, Deuteronomy 33.29. But you're a shield around me. Who's the shield? The independent, self-existing, continuous one. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. He's fleeing. And if it is a day or two after he flees Jerusalem, he says, you bestow glory on me and lift up my head. God had given to David a promise of kingship, an unending kingship. He must be living in light of that. Notice at the end, in verse 4, To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. Selah. (coughs) Lift up the tempo. Take note of this. He laments, and then he says, you're a shield around me. You bestow glory in me. And then he cries to the Lord, and the Lord answers him from his holy hill. In verse 5, I lie down and sleep. I awake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. To bring it home just as an example, suppose you go to work tomorrow and the boss says you're done. You have no warning, you're done. And don't go apply for unemployment because I'm going to give you a hard time. 
And don't go to any lawyer and say you were fired unjustly because I want you to know that I will get to your lawyer. On the way home, after getting fired from the job, you have a wreck and you total your car. You're not hurt. You get a ride home and you come home and your wife says to you, referring to a guy at this point in time, I feel terrible. I have tremendous stomach pains. I don't know what's wrong. So you call 911 and you take her to the hospital. And after a day or two, the doctor says, she has stage four cancer. She might have a week to live. I lie down and sleep. I awake again because the Lord sustains me. David sinned with Bathsheba. He had Uriah killed. His son raped his daughter. Another son murdered his son. And now he has a son that is taking over the kingship. And he says, I lie down and sleep. It's a pretty heavy-duty statement when you consider the context. He's reaping the consequences, but he's crying out to God. And he says, I lie down to sleep. I awake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands. Remember, the majority was with Absalom. And they're drawn up on me and every, against me on every side. Trust is expressed before request for deliverance. Instead of being vexed in his soul or making plans to relieve the pressure, David is learning to console himself with God. Too often plans come before prayer. How many blessings we miss because we conceive our own plans, our own schemes only to see God frustrate them later. The life of faith is one of being protected by God's care making the difference between despair and hope. In the midst of torment, torture, treachery, David smiled up into the face of God. Good night, Lord, he said. I've done what I can. I put as much distance as possible between us and the foe. I posted a guard. Now do thou sustain our cause. And with that, he went to sleep. There were tens, ten thousands of foes, for Absalom had the numbers, but David had God. That was David's vision. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me. In verse 7, arise, O Lord, deliver me. O my God, strike all my enemies on the jaw and break the teeth of the wicked. It was a new day with David. David invoked the words of Israel's marching song, Arise, O Lord. The critical battle with Absalom and with the armed forces of Israel will still be in the future. But David had no doubt about the outcome. Actually, David, or I'm sorry, God had already drawn the fangs of the foe. David did not know it. But away in Absalom's council chamber, the stage advice of Ahithophel was already being discounted 
by the would-be king. In the council of Hushai, the archite, David's secret agent in the palace, was being exposed in its place. The defeat was already being laid as David is sleeping. Deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. Deliver me, if you look at Psalm 85 and some of the terminology as it relates to save and deliver and salvation, to me it means to have a broad path in contrast to a narrow path. It's kind of like going down a road around some major city. You're traveling eight lanes one way. We'll say we're in L.A. We can't envision that maybe unless you've been there. And all of a sudden you're down to one lane and you sit for hours. You finally get through and then it opens up again. David is saying, I'm in a narrow lane. I want you to deliver me. I want you to open it up. Deliver me. And then he says, strike all my enemies on the jaw. The idea of striking enemies on the jaw <clears throat> comes from animals. You have an animal that does have, not have teeth. They're broken. Some of the fear of them is gone. And he is saying, Lord, strike my enemies on the jaw, break their teeth. May they have a lot of bark, if you please, but no bite. From the Lord comes deliverance. From the Lord comes that being in a narrow path to something that is wider. And then he says, may your blessing be on your people. See you last. We can read this psalm. We can say, ah, it's a nice psalm. But as we understand the historical context of it, I think it changes our perspective. Some applications. Part of our worship to the Lord is the freedom to lament in the midst of trouble, even if the trouble is due to our own sin. David is lamenting to the Lord. And he could have gone back and said, Oh, yeah, God. I took another man's wife, had sex with her and got her pregnant. And I had her husband killed so that I could cover my sin. He confessed that. He repented of that. And here he is freely, openly talking to God, knowing he is living with the consequences of his sin. He is fleeing because of his own sin years ago. But he's open with God. How many of us here can look at our past and say, I blew it. I did some bad things. I sinned. I confessed. I repented. I'm right with God. You're living with the consequences of that. You're free to lament to God. God's grace is so great. Is there grace in the Old Testament? Yes. All over the place. There's freedom to come to God. 
There is hope. Well, I'm sorry. He already knows what we're going through. He knows what we have done. He cares for us according to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7. And Christ is our high priest. I don't know, but it blows my mind. We can look at our past and say, God, look at it. And years later, we're dealing with some of the consequences. And God says, I provided a high priest, Jesus Christ. But we're dealing with the consequences of what we did. There is hope when you sin as a believer, confess it and walk with God. Don't live in our sin. Don't live in our past. Don't dwell on our past. When God convicts, confess it, repent, turn from it, and walk with God. That's what David is doing. And he's lamenting to God as he's dealing with the consequences of his sin. Be balanced in talking to God. Appreciation, complaints, express confidence. Let's just walk with God. Don't be afraid to lament and complain. Don't be afraid to express appreciation. As a local church, as an individual, as a family, there's freedom to lament. Even if your circumstance in the present is due to sin in the past. Far too often we live in the past rather than turning from our sin and then maybe lamenting to God as we deal with the consequences. David could have said, God, why did I ever do that? That's not his focus. His focus is, oh Lord, how many are my foes? And he cries out to God, and then he lies down and sleeps because God is his confidence. Please, we have freedom in going to God day by day. Beloved, there's grace. Have you experienced that grace? Have you come to faith in Christ? If not, why not today? If you come to faith in Christ, are you living in the past? Why in the present? Because you're dwelling on your sin in the past. Or have you turned from that and living by God's grace in the present? Let's sing about God's grace. Travis?